Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hey everyone, welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. It is Jen and I in person. In person. In person. In my office. Yeah, recording the uh, first episode of the new year. Like, yeah. Back to basics again. (laughs) (laughs) Again. (laughs) When did they start the series? Was it at the beginning of last year? I'm I mean, sure that's knowable. I, there's but, a record of it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. There's, it, it feels like it's been a while. Yeah. I was just wondering, some reason I just had the sense that it was like a similar feeling to what just happened of like, it's the new year and this is how we're going to do it. Mm. But I could be off on that. That could be a false memory. I think it's actually like July. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit off. Yeah. Just like, well, you Six know, months. fiscal calendar maybe. <laughs> no, like <laughs> Nice try. No. Yeah. Okay. My time. You know, time's odd. Time isn't real. I believe that. <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah. So uh, we took a break for kind of the winter holiday turnover. Um, and we got to share the EMDR supplement, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, fitting in my mind for uh, this season as a whole. Um, it was, I've gotten to talk to several people that um, have listened to the EMDR supplement and they've each commented that it felt really helpful to hear you, Jen and Melissa going through some of the really fundamental components yeah. of uh, EMDR. And it was also cool to see what maybe our certification program looks like. Yeah. It's, I think it's so fun to get to see that shared on the podcast. Cause it was such a, it was a huge project that we put tons of time and just, love into like yeah. planning and creating and yeah to get to see it shared and how it fits so nicely with this back to the basics concept that we've been working on Absolutely. since July not January yeah, since July <laughs> yes um and so this episode we're going to pick back up right where we left off um with chapter five of Francine's uh eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy Third edition. Third edition. Yes. Yes. Um, so and really pretty it's cool. the second part of chapter five. Yes. Right? Or yeah, because the chapter five covers phases two and three. 
And so in our last episode, we talked about preparation, both for EMDR therapy in general, and then preparation for a target specifically. Yeah. And that's where this, this episode really orients us to, as we meet a client and start to understand some of their story, we've got our case conceptualization kind of going, what then do we make of a, of a specific target? And how do we start to work to do the assessment phase, phase three, and uh, prepare to launch Mm -hmm. for phases four through seven? I feel like I said this on the last episode, but it was like now so long ago, I don't know. But Probably like two years ago, right? (laughs) (laughs) Time is not real. Um, So forgive me if I'm just repeating myself, but I say these things a lot in different contexts. But the assessment phase, um, a consultee a while back referred to it as like assess and activate. And I think mm. it might be Roy Kiesling's training who teaches it as assess and activate, not mm. just assessment. Yeah. Which I loved the clarity of language around that because in the general um, eight phases looking at ass- assessment, there's a misconception often in that of like, is this where we're putting in standardized assessments? Is this where we're bringing in like different pieces or what's the actual purpose of this phase? And just the clarity of like, it is to assess the target. Like we're getting some baseline information, but it's also its second purpose is to activate the memory. Mm -hmm. So we have to be monitoring like those two goals And if we're assessing and just getting the baseline information and ignoring the activation piece, we're missing the point. Yeah. Um, It has to encompass both. And so that's going to change a lot on like how we do the phase and how we decide what pieces are critical and what pieces maybe with this client could be left out. So if any part of the assessment is working against the goal of activate, we need to take a pause and reconsider whether we should be using it or not. Yeah. Well, I also love the differentiation between assessment and activation um, in part because they really require you to understand what those might mean for your specific client. Mm -hmm. And our case conceptualization model SIP is a means of, of really trying to dive into that of like, given your context and history, the intersubjective space, of you yourself as a therapist mm-hmm. and the client, what does their larger uh, history taking mean to you together? And what does preparation for a target look like um, as you prepare for activation? That really is a central component of um, getting ready to work with a target in any meaningful way. Um, yeah, that did just remind me we have SAP trainings. We do. Sorry, that was <laughs> well, like that a was weird. A pop like, up yeah. Like, oh yeah. Um, yes. Uh, sorry, just to get it out of the way, we do have SIP trainings coming up. Um, if you're interested at all in in case conceptualization um, for EMDR or just in general, um, both this month and then next month, we've got healing the fragment itself, which is SIP two, mm-hmm. and then uh, April we're going to. The Andrea Summit. Yes. Which is fun. Seattle. Very excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, May, there'll be another SIP one. So if you're if you've heard us talk about that on the podcast and want to take it, check out our website. Yeah. Connectbeyondhealing.com. <laughs> Just for context. Like and subscribe. <laughs> like check out the comments and links below. Like <laughs> feels like a YouTuber. 
Just for context for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> On these episodes, we start each one with saying, what are we talking about? And are there things we need to, to discuss or like share with the audience? Yeah. And so right before recording. I already messed it up. <laughs> Bridget and I have a little plan and then our brains just don't work like that. We get excited and we talk about the content and then it seems like another part of you said, talk about yeah, this now. You're letting Jen down. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what that and was. And also Ryan's going to listen to this and he's going to wonder. <laughs> where, where, where's our SAP conversation? Yeah. Yeah. So that little interjection was the thing we meant to talk about at the beginning. Yes. But it's going to come right now instead. And <laughs> On that note, though, if anyone is going to the summit, please, um, I was, yeah, we want to meet up with you there. Yeah. And we're, we're hoping, planning, yeah. Yeah, we're planning a coffee night um, or a drinks or whatever. Yeah. Food thing. Some type <laughs> of surrounding, hangout. Yeah, surrounding uh, venue to the summit. So keep your eye out on the community page, uh, the Beyond Healing community page for that. Yes. Um, we're going as like sponsors to the event, I guess you would call it. That is what it's called, Our, officially. Notice that's going to be on the bag. A tote bag. A tote bag. We get to hand that out and... Get to carry around all your stuff in it. Selfishly, I'm just excited to like socialize and meet people. And I mean, there's things at the summit I want to learn and engage into, but like the coffee night or drinks or whatever we do. Yeah. I think it'll be fun. I think so too. I'm really, really excited. Um, yeah. So back to assessment. Anyway, uh, <laughs> assessment. Um, what do we talk? No, I did have a thought, and I'll retrieve it here in just a second. Oh, um, I do think in the way that the assessment, like the standard script, is written, it does. Like you go through the questions, right, and you ask the cognition and the scores and all of that, and then there's this. Once you finish sensation, there's this repetition piece that you go and say now as you bring up that image and those negative mm -hmm. words this emotion that body sensation and now go with that that is like this little window of like the intention in that second piece is to activate mm -hmm. we're going back through i think we can use with more intentionality the entire assessment piece as like a slow um, activation of the system yeah if we're not being too heady and cognitive about it if we're doing it in a way that's actually, it's not just one statement that's to activate, but we kind of move through the process with the intention of getting the assessment information and gradually opening that memory back up mm -hmm. in its felt sense, in the emotion and affect with it. Yeah, what came up for me just now is wondering um, for each of the listeners how you feel about the pace of your assessment work. Like just reflecting on your own practice does it feel like something you have to get through like just to get into the memory mm -hmm. or is it something that is slow and you're really looking for that rise in activation and using that as your indicator of now we're ready to start mm -hmm. desensitization and reprocessing? To add to that spectrum of possibilities, there's the other of is it so slow that we're having five, 10 minute conversations on each question? Yeah. Uh, well, what do we mean by cognition? And let's sort through these. And maybe it could be that, but I'm not really sure. And, you know, it can be anywhere. Like, are we going through it so fast just to get to it, to get to reprocess? Or are we getting really 
intellectual mm-hmm. about each question and missing opportunities. Yeah. We actually see the activation peak and then subside because we're talking and thinking and making sense of it versus like seizing the moment and going into it. Yeah. So I think that like optimal range is I'm curious because I, I have in my in my experience had clients sort of in a spectrum of how they interact with me as I'm going through the assessment. Mm-hmm. What is it like for you with each presentation of people that are just kind of like, okay, simple answer, simple answer, simple answer, ready. Or people that do want to talk more or maybe even in their own strategy do feel that rise and and they want to come back down to, to connect. I feel like there's not a right way that it has to be done, but it's about understanding what's happening as it's happening the intention and then working with that so clients who i have that do talk and they feel it peak and they start talking more to kind of relieve the activation that's coming up or they really want to think about it if i can detect that yeah spot it then maybe we do that Mm -hmm. and we actually go through the assessment from a pretty cognitive place as a pendulation in let's just touch all of these things from an intellectual place first And then come back to like safety, chat about it. What was that like? And then maybe we kind of go back in with a little bit more depth um, if that's the pace that they need because too much would be, they're not ready for the the more yet. Yeah. Um, On the other hand, those that want to go just so fast, I'm kind of watching, is that maybe also a strategy of not allowing it to activate? One or two word answers, let's go. And maybe we need to They're slow like it down it yes. through the assessment and sink in a little bit more and, and be able to like really feel the activation that comes in. Yeah. So I think it's less about here's how it should be done and yeah. more of considering like, why is this pattern showing up? Yeah. And do we join it? Do we put kind of nudge them in the other direction? Yeah. How do we respond to I it? I think that's one of the reasons why we, we, highlight the importance of case conceptualization so much because really to even understand how a client is interacting with the you know the insertion of the tool that is the assessment i was thinking just of a client that um the assessment colluded with their intellectualization to where when we originally identified the target it was at like an eight but by the time we were ready for the reprocessing, the desensitization reprocessing, it had gone down to like a two. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, dang it. <laughs> like that's not, that's not what we want. And that's not representative of healing. No. It can be thought of that way of right. like, wow, like, two sets in. Even just talking about it. Like I guess it's better now. Right. Right. Maybe that's actually their strategy coming up and grabbing a hold of the distress and pulling it down back below the surface of their conscious awareness. But then when they interact with the you know, triggering circumstance or go back out into their life, it's like it's maybe even worse now yeah. because they didn't have the time to yep. actually work through it. Um, so again, just to kind of highlight before we start breaking down what the assessment uh, really looks like and how we work with it and understand it, I love that assessment and activate. Mm-hmm. Um, we are wanting to get the kind of skeleton of the target memory and intentionally use that to bring up the activation in a purposeful way so that when we hit desensitization, it's at, in all ideal circumstances, like the just the right moment to mm-hmm. start that desensitization. I, I do want to say, too, like there is the ideal 
peak activation, like we can assess and get full activation to move into desensitization. That is, yeah, that's the perfect scenario for memory consolidation to take place as Mm. it's fully activated with safety. Um, But that is challenging to achieve. Mm -hmm in a highly activated traumatized nervous system, like those are a lot of tricky components. And so giving a little bit of like grace to the idea of it might be okay if we start with partial activation, it might be okay if we start where the somatic piece isn't really fully online yet. Maybe their body's not feeling it yet, but what they can do is dip into a little bit of negative cognition and some emotion. And so we're just going to go and see through this, can we start to increase activation? Yeah. Which means the full trajectory is not, it's at an eight and it's only going to go down. It's maybe we're starting in at a four and it's going to go up and be up for a while before it comes back down. And that is just as successful of reprocessing as having it at its peak and only seeing a decline. Absolutely. And when we turn into chapter six and get into phase four through seven, you'll hear the assessment questions come back up as Mm -hmm. guides for monitoring exactly what you're talking about. Um, Yeah. You want to just dive in? Yeah. Yeah. So first part of assessment, Mm -hmm. selecting the image. Yes. Well, you have your identified target. Yeah. We'll start this once we kind of moving through that preparation. We've prepared for the specific target. We have our identified and then we need an image or a sound or something that represents the worst part. Yes. So in this, you know, in, in Francine's work, it is image kind of focus. It's mm-hmm. dependent. Like that's the subheading. It's like selecting the image. Right. You just listed um, more characteristics that might stand out as what's sometimes talked about as like the worst part or the sometimes I call it like the most meaningful part. Mm-hmm. Um what do you make of that delineation just as you naturally brought it up like broadening beyond just selecting the image that represents i mean my mind immediately pulls to the template of my training which it was in the script it's image or sound Mm -hmm. with the context that not everything is held with an explicit like image or visual um, and that it can sometimes the worst part is a certain sound or a certain like piece of the experience and it's not just an image. Mm-hmm. I think what's the most meaningful part has significant value but gets at something a little bit different too. Yeah. And I, I think it's neat to be able to like play with the language yeah. to say this might be what we're finding when we move through it if we're using, you know, different language. Yeah. Sometimes I've also said um, what stands out to you the most about this memory. Mm-hmm. And that kind of invites some symbolic kind of processing of what they might offer yeah um just instead of me almost asking them to it's it's worst automatically and so pick out the worst part Mm -hmm. like in some circumstances depending on what i've learned in the in my case conceptualization of the person the most meaningful or what stands out to you Mm -hmm. that'll uncover like i'm imagining turning over rocks of yeah. this whole landscape that the that the image or the memory represents um, to see what might actually be what we're after mm-hmm. in selecting the worst part of the image or the sound or smell or whatever. 
And I think the intention of that component is about, again, peak activation. We're not saying what's the first part, like what's the worst part, where is it going to spike activation, but being creative with what words you use, like all these options you're giving is about having it match what is a a good fit of processing for the client and trusting that this is just an entry point. And once we get in and start the processing, the the system will take it where it feels as relevant to go. So yeah. whether you start at the worst part and then you end up finding, you know, the things that are stand out or the what's meaningful to me, or maybe it's a different entry point. Maybe we go with language around what stands out the most because the worst part is unaccessible right now or it's just another entry point in, and then as we start that processing, each rock with that metaphor will get uncovered as we go. One case example stands out to me where I, I feel like I learned, or at least it was um, re-emphasized, the importance of having an awareness of what you're really after. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is a college-age person who came in um, wanting to process specifically, was referred to me for EMDR, wanted to process specifically a, a sexual assault. And in that circumstance, there are so many components vying for the worst yeah. part. Yeah. And to her, I, I asked, what was the most meaningful part of this experience to you? And it was how alone she felt after. Mm. In the image of the assault, there's so many pieces that would not have even touched yeah. that element. Yeah. And as I started to work through her case conceptualization, I, I felt this person is very lonely and feels very misunderstood. And that might be, again, as like a hypothesis, that might be what this assault really solidified for her, that I was treated in a way that completely embodied how objectified I felt for a long time, mm-hmm. how alone I felt for a long time, how nobody seems to really notice what I'm feeling or when I'm hurt or what help I need or support. Um, It was just a totally different way of conceptualizing Mm -hmm. for her even. Like it was an aha moment of the assault actually, yes, it was terrible. And I have pieces that are meaningful to process there, but the worst part of it actually was that nobody seemed to care or believe me. In your processing with that, did it end up covering all of it? Like, did it end up going into the, like, actual terror of the physical assault or the sexual assault piece and the loneliness, or did it stay in that one? What was really interesting with that case in particular is that as we woke up that memory, having already prompted it with the most meaningful part, knowing that loneliness and uh, rejection or abandonment was sort of the theme that this memory was kind of saved under in her system. Yeah. The abuser, their face started to change Hmm. from who it actually was to uh, a boyfriend in high school to a coach in high school Mm -hmm. to even versions of her dad, which she was freaked out about. Mm -hmm. Like there were moments in that case where she was like, I don't think I was abused, but there were characteristics of how she had been treated by men in general that started to blend with this sexual assault abuser Mm -hmm. and as i I think if we had chosen that one target i I don't know if it would have 
invited the emergence of really the core meaning that, again, in my conceptualization, was solidified by the assault. Mm-hmm. I think it would have stayed limited right. to that one memory. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, isn't it interesting, like different entry points and what what that can open up access to. I could see in the standard way might desensitize that experience, which offers tons of relief for the system. Yeah. But then we're also looking at it doesn't have that larger generalization of like, yeah. what does this mean not just for that moment, yeah. but for a lifetime of experience. Yeah, and that's one of the one of the, I guess you could say, biases of my approach is I believe that every circumstance that has that that would stand out to you as a trauma hurt you for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. Like whatever it was tipped you over because there were already predispositional insecurities that were exploited yeah. by that experience. And so that's where my my substituting what's the worst part or what image stands out in, in lieu of what is the most meaningful or what um, what stands out to you about this experience. I'm wanting to kind of naturally invite that assimilation mm-hmm. and uh, emergence of knowing that this memory hurts because it's eerily similar to pain that you've experienced long before mm-hmm. the the memory. And even the if they don't realize that as they identify it, like yeah. I think for a lot of clients, those types of questions are what help them to see it. Yeah, um, they may not know that going into the process yeah i do it sounds like you had an image with her too like there was an image still i if i can get an image i love to mm-hmm. have an image um for the sake of like projection and like the symbolism in yeah, it watching the, it the metaphor yes i do have many clients who just there's just not one it is a sound or it is something else but if I can invite their system into activating that projective experience, I love to like encourage that. And if I get the first like, well, there's not really an image, I might stay in that space for a little bit longer to say yeah. like, if it's not an actual image, is there an image you could create and describe it to me that would represent the feeling of it, that would represent the worst part? Mm-hmm. Um, I just have found that processing goes so much more i think it's more of that right hemisphere piece is like we're gonna get out of that cognitive storytelling narrative if we can dip into the imagery Um, yeah what just came up for you or for me while you were sharing was with memories or felt senses that might not be stored in a way that a clear point in time stands out yeah like maybe it's it's more representative or regional as we talk about it mm-hmm. um that it's it's larger more systemic than that um that's where i think creating a symbol that does hold at least enough of the core theme yeah. of that that series of experiences can be really powerful for me i always want there to be some guided imagery mm-hmm. a scene um it, even even if it feels like a body sensation, I do want to give it a shape, a, a weight, yeah. a color, a texture, something, so that I can have some sense of awareness of how it is moving or changing or you know incorporating new facets. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I feel like in any consultation group I've ever led, this is where the question about aphantasia comes up. Uh (laughs) What if my clients can't see images? Um, So I just want to like speak to that because I imagine someone that's listening is wondering that. And there's so many options of how do we work around that and with that. Uh, You named some of them, but like what if it could be a a body movement Mm -hmm. or a certain gesture? Um, Yeah. Maybe it is something more practical and tangible that they could see that we bring in to hold as a metaphor and a symbol. I draw a lot like on my whiteboard Mm -hmm. with aphantasia or even with – uh, some forms of autism spectrum or neurodivergence in general where those those prerequisites to the traditional eight phases are tough to reach or maybe feel yeah. impossible to reach. Um, like I've used the box of Kleenexes on my on my <laughs> table between us so many times as like a representation of could this thing be what is the worst part or yeah. what would this need to look like or do and people have like tipped it over or smashed it yeah. or you know in some way turned a physical object into yeah. something that's more representative for how they're feeling or what this memory represents yeah i had a consultee recently bring out like she had collected all of these beautiful fabrics not all beautiful in my opinion but just fabrics that would have different textures, colors, patterns, patterns mm-hmm. that could activate templates. Um, it was really cool. And she said she like, has a container of them and she brings out and has her clients go through and she either resources with them or activates trauma and processes with them. Yeah. But that's another just great example of if you can't access like visualizations in your mind, we can bring in things that still activate the system in the way that we're attempting to activate and give some kind of metaphor and projection yeah. is what we're doing in this component of assessment. Yeah. I've worked, you talking about textures. Um, I've worked with a couple different people with traumatic brain injury uh, in different locations, but um, the tactile element, smooth versus rough yeah. versus wet versus dry, those types of things um, have been able to connect. with a a felt sense of disgust or anger or Mm -hmm. cold or in some way those lower um like lower in the brainstem sensations are able to still connect Mm -hmm. with something even if there's no image or you know i don't know how to access it in memory i just know that it hurts yeah those are ways to give um access points for what that distress feels like this is great to connect even with like pre-verbal processing, yeah. non-verbal work. Yeah. Oh, there's so much juicy stuff I could talk about down that path. But yeah. um, kind of bringing it back to assessment, I think the summary in this is knowing what the intention of identifying the image or the worst part is and then giving yourself, this is going to be the theme through every one of these components, but giving yourself a lot of creativity and permission to modify, adjust, as long as it's still meeting that intention. Mm -hmm. We may have to do it in different ways, and that could be even more, um, it could accomplish even more with our client if we're willing to step outside of the rigidity of it has to be an image that represents the worst part. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else for you on that? No, I was just thinking this isn't actually back to the basics. I mean, we're going back to the basics. <laughs> well, we said at the beginning of this that it would be our added commentary as there well. There you go. Okay, thank you. I needed that. The basics was name the picture. That's what it says. Perfect. So. Okay. And then all the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. 
All the other stuff, if you don't want to do that, you don't have to do that. Right. <laughs> the basics is just fine. But good luck with that. No, just <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> cognition time. Yes. Negative cognition, positive cognition, mm-hmm. validity of cognition. Fun. Yeah. So as you're working through the assessment, you bring up, uh, again, back to the basics, the picture uh, or the other stuff that we just talked about right. of most meaningful, the worst part, um, the the thing that stands out to you. Um, and then in the standard eight-phase approach, we're looking for some sense of meaning mm-hmm. about what that means to you uh, what or what that represents to you. Um, so what are your thoughts on negative cognitions? Well, my first thought comes in like, this is a way of capturing with language kind of the how did you categorize this? Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you, uh, I'm going to use Kelsey's language, how did yeah. you code mm-hmm. this experience? And that is so important to have access to. But with negative cognition, it doesn't have to be as simple as one of those phrases on that paper, yeah. on the negative cognitions list. That's a, an access point in. So yeah, which the negative cognitions list, like every basic training is is going to have some form of a negative cognitions list. Right. You can Google and find EMDR negative cognitions lists. There's variations. There's all kinds of different things that are trying to give you templates to use to give your client rough categories of of potential negative cognitions. Yeah, and I've worked with clinicians that really stick to it, like pick one of these. Mm-hmm. I've also had some that don't use any list at all. They're yeah. going to co-create a negative cognition or something that represents the negative side of that experience or picture or whatever. Um, so there is a lot of uh, freedom mm-hmm. in what's possible to help your client get to that coding, yeah. quote unquote, of what did that really mean to you? What meaning did you make of that yeah. experience? The language we use a lot is what's the negative emotional learning. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's what's the learning you took out of that and internalized and have held on to? A yeah. lot of times in the training, it's like, what's the title of that file yep. that has now been created and you've been adding memories to it yeah. throughout the years? So it's a way of accessing that with spoken words that can open that up, that can activate that channel. We don't always have material here. And pre-verbal, non-verbal memories, this is not always a helpful piece, right? Like if Mm -hmm. we can get to it and find the meaning, but sometimes in those experiences, they don't have a set words that fit. They don't have a way of articulating the meaning they've made. And that's where the symbolism, the metaphors, the imagery becomes even more important that we're leaning less into language to express it and a way of, is there another way you can show me the meaning that was made of it or how you're making sense of it now? Yeah, I've heard a lot, and this is something I use as well, is what does that mean about you? Mm -hmm. Um, Whatever we just identified in the preceding element of the assessment. And so what does that mean about you? Typically, that's where you're going to start hearing things like, just as an example, like I'm a bad person or I'm out of control no one understands me, I'm not safe. Like there are those categories that are pretty consistent across uh, the meaning that could be made of yeah. a circumstance that registers as traumatic or that you're you're treating with, with EMDR. Yeah. 
the the basic trainer in me wants to say like the now part, like mm-hmm. what meaning are you making of that or what negative belief feels true to you now? Yeah. What does that mean about you now? The significance of, you know, how is it stored in your system at this time versus maybe how you made meaning of it in the past or uh, what words you assigned to it then and has that adapted, changed, evolved over time? Yeah. That reminds me of a, a question I get a lot, which is, do you make them, do you make your clients talk about it then or talk about it now? Mm. Like if, what if your client says, well, do you mean how do I feel about it now or how do I feel about it back then? Like for you personally, Jen, like how mm-hmm. do you handle that type of question? I want to know both. Yes. <laughs> I say yes often to yeah. my clients like, yeah. in their, in their because questions. no matter what it is now. They are in the now. So even this is going to, I hope I can make this sound clear, but even if they say, how did I feel about it? Then it's still what is stored in their system right now. The interpretation from the present of back then. Yes. Yeah. And so that the like both feels important to me and is it the same or is it different and how has it become different? Like that path feels really key in, in knowing and understanding whether we get a clear picture of that or or not, but that feels like it has a lot of information that's held in how did you feel about it then and what meaning are you making of it now? Yeah. You my, oh, sorry. As I say, my, um, in my experience, oftentimes, even if they say like, well, back then I felt like I was stupid, but now I know like I was just a kid and, you know, but there's still patterns of activation about the experience that tells me we're working with a fragmented system that says this memory is stored in this way, but I also have a more adult understanding of it. Yeah. And I can either conceptualize that if your head thinks one thing and your body thinks another, or one part of you is holding this understanding and one part of you is holding that. And the goal of our process is to is to bring that together and say, can we bring alignment to that? Can we get both your body and mind to agree about this experience as we process through it? Yeah, what I hear in that specific example that you just gave is strategy, that Mm -hmm. at some point you learned that a dismissive orientation towards the experience you had then is going to help you either handle the distress or differentiate between I'm not back there, Mm -hmm. like I'm not, I don't have to feel that way anymore. One of the things that I find curious in in people that do say, well, do you mean back then or now? I also say, yes, like I want to know both, mm-hmm. is that in that transition from whatever was before and whatever is now, you'll probably start to hear things that cue you into other significant experiences. One of the questions that I hold on to if I don't ask right away is, what do you feel like made the difference to you? Mm-hmm. Why was it that way then, and why is it this way now? Yeah. So if I don't ask that because of the flow of the assessment, it's something I'm holding on to, because you are hearing just as you illuminated two senses of self in mm-hmm. some way um, that are coming through and and seem to register a different experience. And, and I think the like we're we're highlighting in that where that strategy it could be representation of like genuine healing right like i can look back and say yeah those experiences at one time i thought this about myself in reference to those and i feel different now 
But those questions that you're highlighting help to get at that. Yeah. Like, is what, this healing or is this strategy? Right. What was a part of that shift? And sometimes it's not clear. They're not like, well, that's my strategy now, but we can get a good <laughs> yeah. clear. Rarely ever have I right. heard that in Never. my office. Yeah. Unless it's us talking yeah, exactly. about it. <laughs> but to really get at like what's been a part of that evolution and are we dismissing? Are we trying to like dissociate the the stored experience about it and live in the narrative that we want to be true? Or is that representative of what we're really feeling? And yeah. I think patterns, symptoms, all of that will start to really show more than just their story. But are we actually having patterns that say maybe there's still something left to this? Yeah. Yeah. So what words best fit that picture or that experience that we were highlighting um the negative side and then there's the positive side mm-hmm. um i have it, i remember so clearly even in my basic training um feeling through the almost assumed inversion of the negative cognition mm-hmm. like like if if my negative cognition was i'm a bad person it feels like what's supposed to be said is, well, how would you like to feel about yourself now? Or what would you like to believe about yourself now? Well, I guess that I'm not a bad person. (laughs) You know, like there's almost that assumed inversion. Um, What is your experience or what what stands out to you in the juxtaposition between the negative Mm -hmm. cognition and the positive cognition? So for me, the the inversion has relevance in terms of what, memory network and emotional learning theme or category we working in because sometimes a traumatic experience is in multiple um themes is the language i use with my clients but Mm -hmm. it 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 taps into both like i'm unsafe something bad's going to happen to me and the opposite being i'm a valuable person right we're working in two different schemas Mm -hmm. in that and so there's some value in trying to say like can we tackle both at the same time? Can we yeah. find safety, feel that there's enough safety in the world that then I can also believe I'm valuable and can engage in the world in a valuable way? Or do we need to just focus on safety um, and I'm okay now and I'm capable of defending myself or whatever that right. is, and then make a pivot or shift over into worth and value? Um, and so I think I'm not ever looking for an exact inversion but i am looking to say what's the emotional learning the negative emotional learning and is there a positive emotional learning that's still representative of this schema they could have very different words but we're looking at like kind of the same theme Mm -hmm. and if i get something in a different theme that i'm exploring with them is there a certain direction we want to go with this i'm hearing these two different kind of themes show up yeah and is there one that feels like is relevant first that we tackle yeah. One thing I'm uh, reflecting on is consultees that have asked me about the order of these assessment components. And perhaps this is something we can touch on later in the episode, but um, with the next elements being the validity of cognition for the PC, the positive cognition, mm-hmm. the emotion, the body sensation, uh, and the, the suds, um, that it feels like I've had consultees say it feels like we're going kind of back and forth between, mm-hmm. oh, the distress, oh, here's the positive. Oh, the distress, oh, here's the positive. I'm just curious what it feels like to you to 
ask about the negative cognition, getting that schema, as you just said, mm -hmm. and then jumping into the positive cognition. Because for me personally, I get a lot of responses from clients of like, it almost feels like a lofty imagination. Mm -hmm. Like I just, we just did the, the, the um, picture or worst part or most meaningful part and then the negative cognition of what that means to them. And now I'm going to ask them, what would you like to believe about yourself instead? Yeah. What does that feel like to you in mm -hmm. your work? I get same comments from clients and consultees. Yeah. Some, and I would say of consultees that I work with, that's the first thing that they change or drop and then say like, I did this, is that wrong? Is that yeah. bad? Um, which is interesting that it's like such a theme around that is it feels confusing or clients are like, wait, what are you asking me? And then yes. the scales that come in and they're on different numbers and they're like, there's some confusion that comes in it. Um, I have made meaning of it that I don't know if it's just my way of making it feel okay. I also have a lot of flexibility around changing it. Yeah. But for me, like once we're identifying the schema or the theme that we're working in, which is going to come from, enough activation of the memory and then the what meaning did we make of it that identifies the theme then we want some type of anchor point to yes. say we need to cast an anchor out there so we at least know what we're headed towards uh, we may find a different landing place but it at least gives us some context of what are we working towards and how are we going to navigate the waters between here and there yeah and that cognition is just simply that for me to know as the clinician guiding them, but then also to prime their nervous system. I want to activate the other side of yep. this a little bit too. I want to stimulate that right alongside the stimulation of the negative so that as we start moving through, their nervous system is already feeling that side kind of primed and activated. Yeah. Um, so if I can get a positive cognition, that's the purpose it serves. We've stimulated that and then we're going to go back into, let's finish these other components finish activating and start reprocessing. If that takes me out of the purpose of the assessment, like we start getting lost and confused and does this fit and is it the right one? It's the first thing I drop because yeah. we'll find it along the way. Yeah, I don't actually need it that much at the beginning. It could be, you know, five sets in and, and then I ask the question, right. what do you wish you could believe instead? And there's more clarity there. Right. Um, France, you agree with Francine because oh, okay, the, way, <laughs> yeah, the way she describes it in the text is, and you'll hear this over and over and over again if you read um, from the book, titration is a big, uh, and that psychological or psychic flexibility mm -hmm. to be able to get in touch with the negative um, intensity of the distress and then move over to the resource, the hope, the yeah. positive side, and then back to the distress and back to the positive. There is a, a built-in intention, at least, to model and create templates for the client of, here's the negative, now let's remember that that's not all mm -hmm. that we are, or that's not how we have to stay. Here's the positive. Yeah. And that's where you can start to hear some of that wishfulness. This is how I, I talk about it. The wishfulness of, well, I guess it would be that I'm a valuable person or that I'm mm -hmm. a good person. They're, they're identifying or at least have the opportunity to identify the hope that they have if they could work through or heal from yeah. this negative distressing experience.
I think that's um, talking to one of our clinicians who's in the somatic experiencing training, mm-hmm. very similar approach there of like, it's a constant pendulation mm-hmm. from a resourced state to an activation. And I think that's a very common approach to trauma treatment of yeah. we can't just dive in, like it has to be an ease in and ease out. And with that idea in mind, like that's where the positive cognition helps to do that. But we can be, we need to be considering that all throughout the process and between sessions. So if it's always like, Oh, we only got to a five, we need to go back in and do more trauma work. And then we only got to a three, we need to go back and do it again until it's all complete. We've got to find that like pendulation titration for them of like, maybe actually we do some resourcing in between that is in the positive cognition realm. Like it's not random, it's very intentional, yeah. but we come in and we spend a little bit of time with that positive, wishful um, belief or experience, and then we go back in. Yeah. That's priming their system to do the reconsolidation. It's not haphazard, like it's very intentional. Right. So in the positive cognition, you identify maybe that wishful idea or that hoped for or longed for transformation from the traumatic experience and the meaning it created into uh, this new hope idea. And then there's the validity of cognition. So Mm -hmm. on a scale from one to seven, where one is completely false, seven is completely true. How true do the words, insert positive cognition, feel? It's Uh, like you're reading it from a script right now. That's so crazy, it's like I've memorized it. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, talked to so many people about it. Um, Yeah, that cognition, is a really interesting piece of the assessment, which this is like full EMDR geek nerd out. Like, <laughs> so interesting to watch how people can be deflated by that mm-hmm. question of like, I'm a valuable person on a scale of one to seven. How true does that feel to you? One, mm-hmm. two. And watching that, like, sink. I've also had clients that know that it's going to be low so they kind of dismiss it like is there a zero like you know like they'll they'll kind of flippantly yeah <laughs> they'll flippantly kind of give me i don't believe it at all um and i've had other clients that sit on how low it is and kind of are already starting to imagine like i wonder what it would be like for it to be a two instead of a one mm-hmm. like is it true that it's really a one they kind of start to wonder yeah in, in a way do you feel like then the VOC score is achieving that titration pendulation goal, or if it creates the the defeat, the deflation, it's having like the opposite effect of what we need? My consultant answer mm-hmm. is that the VOC score is something I'm going to be paying attention to as we chart the effectiveness of our desensitization and reprocessing. My personal answer uh, for me as, as, a, as a human is that I want to see how their system rejects the wishfulness mm. um, and why. Like I want to hear, and not in language or I'm not going to, I don't ask them to explain why it's a right. one, but I'm listening behind their words for, I wonder why they could see the wish or the hope and reject it yeah in the way that they did i think actually asking explicitly i mean it is a suggested yeah. interweave at some points yeah. maybe not from the get-go in assessment but that that 
curiosity around what's preventing it, what's yeah. holding it there, what's not allowing anything to, ch- to grow or to change in that. Yeah. yeah. So for me, the Vogue is I'm listening for case conceptualization, which, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, that's what I'm listening for Everything. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> listening for it all the time. Um, but I want to hear the congruence or incongruence of their expression of answering that question on a scale of one to seven how true does it feel Mm -hmm. i am a good person or not my fault or yeah people love me and i think the way you're talking about this is it's so much less about just the question or just the answer and if in the question and answer we get spun into this really heady place of like ah what's it supposed to be and all that that it's missing the point and then in my experience, then it's like, at that point, we just kind of roll with it. Like yeah. they can give me whatever they want to give me. And I'm not going to be like, well, actually the scale isn't zero to 10. It's one to seven. Can you give me a new number? Like <laughs> we've, I, I emphasize this because I see therapists um, stay more committed to the protocol and the scripts than to what's really being shown and how it's being answered by the client. And so just kind of letting go of trying to make it fit nicely into that worksheet and feel fluid with it. Whatever they give me is, you know, it says something, even if it doesn't give me an answer, it gives me something and we can kind of let that piece flow into the next and then see how all of that unfolds once we start desensitization. Right, right. I love the posture to be patient with the unfolding. Mm -hmm. Um, That's that's one of the major points that I highlight for consultees is that this whole process, you don't really know it at the time, especially early on in your in your practice, but you're asking questions that that activate their full sense of self, or at least have the potential to. Yeah. So you're learning so much if you're patient enough to look for it mm-hmm. of how their system is held together. Um, just in the way they answer these questions. Mm-hmm. And not, oh man, that this dips into so much case conceptualization, but not even just in the way they answer it with what their words say, yeah. but what's happening with their body and their tone of voice and the their posture and their movement and like yeah. all of the things of like the avoidance of it or the eagerness to answer it, like all of the, the how it's happening is just as important as the what is being said yeah jen you know this about me but um for the listeners percentages are very important to me they are really important because they they help me understand the world it doesn't matter but um (laughs) what i say to to consultees and supervisees is that um and i say it this way to kind of show them how seriously i take uh what i'm looking for Mm -hmm. that uh, when you're talking to me and I look at you with this type of focus, 20% of me is, is paying attention to the words that you're using. The other 80% is paying attention to how you're talking to me. Mm-hmm. Why are you? <laughs> That's just so intimidating. It's, it's accurate, right? Yeah. In therapy, that feels so real. But also, like, hearing you look at me and say that, like, I'm like, shit. <laughs> like, like, what am I doing right now that he's paying attention to? Well, you're twirling your little thing, which you always do. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't mean to intimidate. 
<laughs> no, I know that's a reality, but just thinking and I said like it's super intense. I don't like... usually say it as intensely as that. I think it's 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 very real though. Whether oh, we're yes. saying that directly to the clients when this once the safety is there, or it's about like sharing out with other therapists, like it is twenty percent of what they're saying is actually what matters. Like. Yeah. Not twenty percent of what they're saying. All of what All they're the saying matters, matters. But it matters. Words 20%. account for twenty percent. There you go. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, I talk about so much with with consultees and supervisees that why learn to listen for why they're saying what they're saying, what why they're using the words. Yeah. Why did you say it that way? What does that tone mean? Um, and obviously, these are these are questions that you're not culturally supposed to ask like mm-hmm. we're not raised to <laughs> to mm-hmm. listen or definitely not to talk or ask questions this way yeah. so i kind of file it away in in like the operating system of my case conceptualization that yeah. there are parts of me that are trying to understand those answers what does that word mean when you say it that way mm-hmm. next to this word um yeah and the I feel like as the therapist, we don't actually have to know why. Yeah. It's just that we're curious about it. Yeah, and you we'll probably actually, won't know. Right. Like, exactly. And if we do come to know, it'll be together. It'll yeah. be something that we make eventually make explicit and we talk about it and we explore it. We stay curious together. Um, we're not in the role of like interpreting and understanding totally. for them. But the curiosity is key and not getting distracted by Things as if they're absolute, concrete details and truth, knowing there's so much more that isn't as clear and concrete. Yeah. One of the, within our case conceptualization model, there's a, in the Venn diagram that we use, there's a a section devoted to somatic psychology. And um, when consultees have very little to report on the somatic side, Mm -hmm. this is one area where I, I tie back in that you actually know more than you realize sure. about your client's relationship of a coherent uh, physiology. Yeah. You do know. You just don't know that you know. Um, Caleb had a group of us do this exercise. It was brilliant where we had to close our eyes and think of a client and then try to position ourselves like them, like yes. embody them for a moment. That was fascinating, yeah. like to that point of like you know so much more than what you think you know. Oh yeah, because I would have never thought of like, oh yeah, it's like exactly this hand movement and the way they hold their legs here you and know this their expression mannerisms. on their face. But when I pull up the idea of that client and I think about how does my body move to think about being them, mm. oh, like you you do know it, and then you feel so much in relation totally. to that. Like it was really, uh, yeah provocative exercise you're like totally. whoa i know a lot about this person mm-hmm. yeah um okay so back to yes <laughs> we got lost <laughs> back to basics case. so that's back why it's basics. that's why it's called that <laughs> it's for us yeah, it's, for us. it's a constant reminder oh, back to basics got it got it got it um as the assessment is put together transitioning from the validity of cognition to the emotion you're going to naturally have to reprompt Yep. The target, however you're identifying it, image, sensation, mm-hmm. worst part, most meaningful part, whatever, and the negative cognition. Many of the scripts are put together as you bring up that image that represents the worst part and the negative cognition. On the blank. Insert. Uh, what emotions do you feel? Mm-hmm. This is, uh, again, 
EMDR nerd out moment. Really interesting because you're assuming that the client knows what emotions are and how to pair them with an experience and a negative cognition or a schematic meaning mm-hmm. of, of an experience. Um, yeah, what is this part like for you? What emotion do you feel? I mean, it's so different per client. Yeah. Like it's so unique to them. And again, it's like, what emotions do you feel? They We get the same question now or at the time, mm-hmm. right? That comes up again and all the answers before apply to that. But some, it's they don't know how to identify affect or emotion or they identify what they believe is the accurate emotion to it. Yeah. Feel very sad, but there's zero affect <laughs> yeah. expression, right? It's just not there. So it's, many clients are flashing through my mind. I'm just like, just flat reports. Yes. Of, it's a cognitive assignment yeah. of what am I supposed to be feeling right now yeah. or what makes sense to feel right now. But what we're really looking at if we're considering this assess and activate is can we activate that emotion? Yeah. Um, can that be present? And maybe it's a very small contained version of it because they don't feel ready to just like rage in front of you or but be able to just can they feel it? Is there any sign that that is activated in their system? Right. I see sometimes clients say like assignments like good or bad. Right. They're not even getting into like the artistic expression with emotion, yeah. which is where feelings wheel or things like that can be helpful is this might be a client that doesn't have a template for a lot of emotions. We have happy, sad, and angry are the only three that we know how to put to something. Yeah. So I don't use a lot of like worksheets or feelings wheel, but if helping them learn language that could maybe start to express the nuances of the way they feel about that. If I get sad to everything they say, we might start looking at different versions of sadness. Is it grief? Is it disappointment? Is it, Mm -hmm. you know, starting to get into the details to say, does that resonate differently in your body when we bring that word to this image? And this memory. Yeah. In my practice, uh, I hear actually more cognitions often in Mm. like more meaning exploration. They'll talk more about, well, you know, it's just hard to see it that way or it's, it's, um, it's upsetting or, um, if they're really distressed, um, maybe numb or, um, rage, whatever Mm. they might say. But again, what we were talking about with the percentages idea the way they're talking about it is really important to pay attention to because whatever they say, you're asking them to give a label to an entire experience, mm-hmm. one emotion, or like, you know, a few words of emotion that don't confuse that for how it actually yeah. <laughs> unfolded or is stored. The point is to start inviting them into the intensity of distress and what direction that's pointed in. So the emotion is going to give you an idea affectively of what what this experience means and how they're currently able to attach or or connect with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's okay if they don't have a huge emotional vocabulary. I'm thinking of the coding thing again. Uh-huh. Like emotions are really just coded sensations. Yeah, you learn to describe this this way. Right. And if the sensation comes the question of sensation comes after emotion, but and maybe that helps. Like if we can give emotion, it helps us identify sensation more. But I think 
for those who maybe don't have the vocabulary for it, yeah. what we really need to know is like the activation in the system, is it being felt and is there a way of expressing it and working with it in some capacity Yeah, that if they don't have a code that is an emotional word to tie to it, um, can we see any indications of like affect being experienced or sensation being experienced that represents this memory? Yeah. Yeah. As I kind of scan through um, the elements of the chapter, um, they do feel really linked to me, the, the emotions and then the next question, which is um, the SUD scale, subjective mm-hmm. units of distress. So, so on a scale of 0 to 10, where 0 is no distress at all, and 10 is the worst distress you can imagine, how distressing is that emotion linked to that cognition, to that image mm-hmm. that that's really kind of like the momentum of this portion of the assessment for me is that how you set it and how you learn to code it is going to show up hopefully in when we turn to the distress what i have experienced a lot is that depending on how they've answered the preceding questions there is going to be a fluctuation of that sud score based on, or um, in comparison to if we were to just ask, okay, that target memory, how distressing is it to you mm-hmm. right away? Like for some clients, it'd be more distressing. Yeah. And for some clients, it'd be less distressing because of how we've worked through the assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the consultant answer is that the SUD score is going to be what you're tracking throughout phases four through seven to really know where we're going and what's coming up, what resources the client might need. Uh, to work, but when we look at it just from this kind of bracketed assessment lens, um, that that was coming up for me that that the SUD score is really um, going to be linked to how you went through that assessment process preceding this question. Yeah. I I loved your opinion on this because I even more than where the positive cognition is located in all of it, the thing I struggle with the most is where the SUD score is placed. Um, bet- like, and the disruption of what feels like in like getting into activation. Yeah. And the assessment on a scale is so cognitive to like... Oh, yeah. To have to hear a scale and then determine where I'm at on it and to report a number. It just, that part feels a little bit like a, a shift just where we're putting energy in the processing, like what are we activating there? Yeah. And I, I don't think it actually has that much of a disruption, but it is like uh, it conceptually, yeah. it's like, why wow, that's so interesting there. Where like when we're trying to meet sensation is the peak of what we're actually trying to get at yeah. all together. And yeah. these are different ways into how is it held in your system And so when we get into that sensation to ask the disturbance before and then to say, where do you feel that distress in your body? I don't know. It feels like a backwards way of going at it in my experience versus like, let's feel the distress. Let's notice it. What is the sensation? Let's be with it. And how big is that? Right. Is it huge or is it small? I was going to say, I use um, how intense is it? Um, Like super intense, not, not much at all. Like for me, the number aspect of it really does like pull them yes. out really sharply. Yep. Um, and that's something, again, my goal in the assessment is momentum towards desensitization reprocessing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to flesh out what does this 
what is this scene that we're zooming into and how have you made sense of it since it happened? Mm -hmm. But my goal is to get activation in the system that's consistent with the the distress. And so I uh, just naturally over the years have have edited how I describe this element to Mm -hmm. where numbers are not a part of my (laughs) like assessment process. Um, I I work with uh, what I feel to be a more um, natural means of getting their take on whatever we just talked about. For the Vogue scale, I talk about how true or not true. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not true or partly true. Right. And it's their words, whatever they put to it. Yeah. I don't want to ask them to now... On this abacus, like count the beads. <laughs> like that actually might be helpful. If that's all they had to do. Yeah, just maybe so. <laughs> yeah, maybe that would be better if I had this like little scale that I asked them yeah. to put it on. Um, interesting idea. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so much of me is is focused on maintaining the momentum. Yeah. Um, of where we're trying to get to. That that that's very true to like it feels like it drops out the momentum there when yep. we pivot to sud and then try to go back to sensation after that yeah neurobiologically that feels like such a like a whirlwind right brain, of, left brain. yeah mm-hmm. which i i've kind of written that off for myself in the original assessment was written for research purposes and we have yeah. to have numerical data to uh, determine efficacy and all yep. of that. I don't know if this is accurate, but that's how I tell the story in yes. my head. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, I'm not researching. I can be really flexible with that piece. <laughs> yeah, I love the rationalization in the in the component section, which is at the last part of the chapter. It says the use of SUD and Vogue scales provide the client with quantitative data for a progress report. There you go. <laughs> Even in an uncompleted session, the sense of accomplishment on the part of the client and the sense of account- accountability on the part of the clinician allows for the progressive evaluation of new blocks and goals. Okay. Yes. So, From a researcher standpoint, I would perfect. agree. Quantitative. That, yeah. That that is, you're wanting to quantify the progress or delay of, of the session. Yes. But in what you're describing, we're looking more at like the qualitative assessment. Momentum is a qualitative <laughs> And if you want to get Bridger really revved up. Don't do it. <laughs> we're not going to talk about it. Talk like, about quantitative versus qualitative We don't research. even have to... I'm not even going to act like you said anything about that Um, because the next question (laughs) is about body sensation. So, (laughs) Um, yes, I do believe we're qualitative. Yeah. (laughs) Body sensation, uh, I don't, to me, it's kind of all of what we're speaking and it comes down to like, how is your body activated? Like what shows up? Where -hmm. do you feel? What's the what are the qualities of that feeling yeah. and that sensation? Yeah. Um, that can be with whatever they just say, a single word, and we go with it. We don't have to know as the therapist all the details. What color is it? What shape is it? Like, how is it moving? Right. Um, I use those kinds of questions if they're struggling to find sensation and we want to wake that up and activate it more. But if they have something and you can tell that they're sensing it, we can go right in from there of, moving straight into activate and desensitize. Yeah. Yeah. Clients are so different in my experience of how they answer this question. More often than not, I get a, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Because of just our, just our natural, I think, aversion to connecting with our felt experience for many people. Others, um, you know, I've had clients that jump right into it that say, oh, this part of my body 
um, yeah. or it feels like this, they'll they'll start adding language really organically. I've had other clients that seem to stick to the location in which the trauma occurred, mm-hmm. um, that they'll draw immediately to that. But again, as we've said throughout, for me, I'm listening to more than just the words. Yeah. Um, if they don't know where it's at in their body, that's information. <laughs> like that's that's a meaningful um, snapshot of maybe they live a lot of their life from the neck up. Yeah, um, they're not really thinking about what connection or information is coming sensorily mm-hmm. from their body. And those that run straight to it, again, information that they're very used to connecting with what is coming up for them. Mm-hmm. I've also had clients that are surprised that there is a physical sensation. Um, maybe they're not used to that. And yeah. yeah, I don't know why, but my chest is really like lighting up or I feel pain in my stomach or something mm-hmm. like that. And that's again, information. Yeah. I love those moments when they're almost surprised by yeah. their own experience. Not not overwhelmingly surprised, yeah. but like Is a it weird that surprise. my toe is like, yeah. you know, or like, yeah. yeah. I put my back, it's clenching. And then they're like, oh, I struggle with back pain all the time. I go, this is so, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now we're got it. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. So in... Um, kind of in wrapping all of this up, like that's the last component of assess. And from there, there is in the script that little piece of like reading back through the key components of the image, negative cognition, emotion, body Body sensation, sensation. and go. And so I think the wisdom that is seen in that is in the activate part, you are removing the scores. Yeah. You are removing like the positive cognition. Like it is just for the, the intellectualization. Purpose, yes. Yeah. Of activate. So just to, you know, credit to the script and that that is there, but it's a super short, small. We may need to like sink into those pieces a bit more. I tell consultees a lot of like slow that down, pause between each one. Yeah. Shift your tone, your voice, like all of it is into this like. Let's come into like sinking into each one of these components and yeah. give them time to notice it before we jump right into and go with that. Right. Um, and then we can start the desensitization from there. Yeah. One of the things for me, just kind of closing this this section in this episode, is that I have consultees a lot that um, will ask a lot of questions about, you know, does it have to be what the script says in some form or fashion? And one of the encouragements that I give is that as you practice more, you're going to become more familiar with the intention mm-hmm. of each element of the eight-phase protocol, including including what um, each component of the assessment is for. When you start to understand that intention, the more authentically and meaningfully you can invite your client to collaborate with you on this mm. on this journey. And for me, I so much, I'm so much more interested in what the client is willing to contribute to the assessment phase, but really all facets of the therapeutic process. I do not want this to be something that I'm leading them Administering. through. Administering. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. That feels very objectifying and, and so much less meaningful than what it could be like if we went in this vehicle together mm-hmm. and started the journey. Yeah, I love the keyword in that like collaborating yeah it's not a me doing to you yes but we're joining in this intention empowers collaboration yes love that feels like a great summary 
all of it. Yes. Before we close, we wanted to mention our Drop In with Beyond um, group that we have. So it's not 100% EMDR topics, but probably like 80%, like uh, related to, ties in closely to EMDR. So these are a series of 90-minute discussion, presentation type uh, workshop things that we offer virtually. So you can join from anywhere in Zoom. And 90 minutes, we have them three to five times a month by different uh, consultants or therapists from our community. Every month is a Bridger, Melissa, or I, and then usually there's like one or two kind of guests that come in. Yep. So you can join these or you can listen to the recording, but it's a private group in our, in our Beyond Healing community that has a $30 a month subscription to it. So for $30 a month, you get three to five 90 minute consultation yeah. <laughs> calls or like advanced learnings. Yeah. So. And you also get included access to drop in with Beyond if you uh, are part of our certification program. So yes. Just... And they do come with CEs. Yeah. Um, so if you're kind of wanting to get little CEs here and there for these types of offerings, you can complete a quiz and get continued education yeah. as a part of that. So yeah. it's, um, what is the website that they go to? connectbeyondhealing.com will give you uh, in the four therapist tab an idea of what's coming up in the community but then uh, beyondhealingcommunity.com is where it's actually hosted which is a whole world of beyond uh, yes. that you can get into and the whole beyond healing community is a free access with a lot of resources but drop in with beyond is the subscription group correct so. as i think about it it's probably like 82 83% emdr focused <laughs> thank you for be more specific. Maybe eighty four percent, depending on. Yeah. <laughs> My percentages are very made up in general. <laughs> Bridges are very precisely calculated. I will like give you. <laughs> I will show my math. A breakdown. <laughs> um, yes. So thank you for listening. Yes. Happy to be back to the basics. Back to the basics of this book. So we'll talk to you all again in a couple of weeks. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.